Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey guys, welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need or you think you might have a paranormal need, we can get to you. Um, but uh, it may take us some time. California is a big state, so you never know, right? So if, if we end up running behind on that, like within a day or two, we do have psychics and mediums on staff who can call you and, and talk about your paranormal issue. And, and in most cases, they calm stuff down before we get out there. Okay, that being said, if you're watching from Facebook today and you like what you see, please feel free to hit those hit those like and thumbs up and the smileys and all that good stuff. Um, because what that does is it moves us up and down in the algorithm and it puts us out there to the world to see. Also, uh, with YouTube, same thing. You know, if, if you like what you see and you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to hit that smiley and all that good stuff because we do want to be higher up in the algorithm. All right. And if you haven't done so already, feel free to um, follow us on Facebook and feel free to subscribe on YouTube. There's over more than 600 videos over at YouTube that we've done and uh, different topics. I'm a journalist from a journalist, so I like to change it up. So uh, there, you'll find different topics on there. Back next Wednesday, to give you an idea of the change up, is I'm going to be uh, doing a show on the opioid crisis on Wednesday. And my day is going to be Tinkerbell's story, you know? So it's, it's an interesting conglomeration of shows that I have. Let me push my button here. So my guest today, oh, he's coming in. So we're waiting on the guest, and there he is. Um, I'm real excited. I really enjoy The Legend of Atlantis. It's, it's something that I've liked to study even as a kid. I think, you know, as a kid, I, I was a voracious reader. And my father, thankfully, was into this stuff. And I remember he had 52, this book called 52 Mysteries of the Sea. And it had all kinds of stuff in there. Talked, I think they talked about Atlantis, you know, because obviously, they, you know, that book they thought it sunk in the ocean. And then I moved on. My dad would read, these, read this stuff. And then I would end up reading stuff like uh, Chariots of the Gods and things like that. And I've always been into... Greek mythology all my life, and, and and I enjoy reading about Plato, you know, Plato and all those people. So, uh, talking about Atlantis is near and dear to my heart because it it just fascinates me that a society like that could disappear, literally disappear. Right? It's like this society. It's like everything goes in a circle, and you know, you look at the Ro you look at the Romans and all that, and and at some point, either the society implodes upon itself, or it's just a cycle that it's just the universe coming into play on this stuff, you know, they get so advanced and then boom, start over. Right. So it's interesting. It's interesting to me, especially with Atlantis and the reports from, from, from the Greeks, like Plato and people like, like Plato and people like that, because it disappeared. Nobody really knows what happened, but it's interesting when to talk to somebody like Mr. Le, Mr. Laflemme, because I get more and more information about it. And so do you. Okay. So, quick announcement. Um, Saturday, I'm teaching a psychic development class on protection. And it's uh, kind of a different type of class because I'm going to be teaching what, what, what the stones and the gemstones mean. 
and there's a lot of meaning in the in the gemstones. You'd be surprised. Like, a, for instance, there's actually a kidney gemstone that allegedly helps with kidney problems. If you have it, there's a blood pressure stone. So, I mean, there's the, there's medical things. I'm not saying it works. I'm, I'm not a doctor. Okay, it's all it's all untried. It's all legendary, but uh, it should be an interesting show because I, I also um, when I go out investigating, I wear a medicine bag around my neck for protection. Well, I can teach you how to make a medicine bag. It's not. It's not that difficult. It's not as difficult as you think, you know. And I have total respect for the uh, you know Native Americans where that's concerned. But I kind of taught myself how to make my own, you know, because normally you would go to, you, you would go to Native American and have them make it. But uh, I uh, learned how to make my own, and it seems to be working. I haven't had anything horrible come home with me or anything like that, so it seems to be working. And I think it also helps with my heart. I'm also going to teach you how to make talisman. You know, I want I want you to be able to protect yourself. It's a protection class. So I want you to be able to protect your home and your pets and all that. So with a talisman, you know, you can actually hang it somewhere in your house or make two or three of them and hang them around your house, right, for protection. So, yeah, I'm going to be teaching that. So that'll be Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific. The way to sign up for that class is over at the California Haunts Meetup page. So remember that, California Haunts Meetup. That's where you can sign up. And go in there. You'll have to join the meetup. It's a freebie. Don't be afraid. And uh, then you can um, actually... Uh, sign up from there because it's on the calendar. Okay, so there you have it. For those of you that have seen the trailer for the Tinker, the uh, Gina Rock video, which I've which I've had running around Facebook and Instagram, uh, please feel free to go visit that. I, we, I have a Patreon site where when we shoot a pre-recorded show, that recording goes over to the Patreon first, and it's, it's shown a week and a half before it's shown on the regular network, you know, on YouTube. So that's an early bird. Thing, and that's one of the perks is you get early bird crack at that plus extra interviews with uh guests like nancy Matts, you know and, and, and other fun things and and when we get enough subscribers over there we're going to go ahead and start doing giveaways california haunts giveaways you never know it might be a giveaway for a ghost hunt to come with us or it could be anything it could be anything so uh that's what uh, that's what the plan is with that okay i'm done talking now and i'm going to bring my guest in michael Laflem, and he has done some work with Atlantis, and he's written a book about it. It's called Visions of Atlantis. So I'm really excited to talk with him. So without further ado, let me bring him in. Hey. Hey, how's it going, sir? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Tell me about you. Oh, about me? Uh, well, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I wrote a book, uh, Visions of Atlantis, uh, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy. Um, and before that, you know, I was a just your regular run-of-the-mill adjunct history professor in Chicago. Um, and yeah, during that process, um, about seven years ago, started to look into this topic and, you know, approached it as a complete, I don't even like the word skeptic, but just as a, well, if I find evidence, then okay. If I don't, then okay, fine. So I did this for myself. I didn't do this. I didn't have a plan when I started, um, you know, and it started off really as just um, a series of notes that I had compiled on my computer for many years and notebooks. And, you know, after maybe five years, I realized, wait a minute, you know, you've actually put together a lot of information that I think, you know, the world needs to see. And um, there you have it, you know. There it is. 
What got you interested in this topic? I couldn't tell you, honestly. Um, I think, you know, I had read um, The Antediluvian World by Ignatius Donnelly from, mm -hmm. you know, 1882. And I was really astounded, given the knowledge that existed, let's say, about oceanography, anthropology, and things like that at that time, you know, um, like when that book came out, uh, you know, they had just discovered five years, basically when he started writing that book, they had just discovered the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, you know, to give, just to put it in perspective, like we like to think that, um, you know, we've always known that. No, I mean, they didn't know that the Mid-Atlantic Ridge existed until 1877 with um, the Challenger expedition. So I was, I was interested to see you know, I like the way he structured that book because he took a global view of the Atlantic world and said, you know, what, why are there all these many, you know, similarities between not just language, but culture, religion, and, you know, um, oral traditions of this place that doesn't exist anymore or is submerged? Um, and I wanted to take it further, you know, because that book, as great as that is, it's a very kind of, um, I'm not going to say outdated, I would never disrespect him, but it's missing a lot of things that have since been discovered, you know, uh, in the last hundred and, you know, 20 plus 140 years now, it's crazy to think. And I wanted to write kind of the next version of that, but also include um, things that he wouldn't consider, you know, like esoteric information, channeled information, um, information from past life regressions, you know, from reputable people like Dolores Cannon, who's done that, or Barbara Han Clow, who's, you know, regressed herself and things like that, and see what these people said. And, um, you know, put it all together, but then present it in a way that's not like a lot of other books I had read, which were kind of presuming, you know, that the audience already believed in it, um, or outright setting out to debunk it, you know, or whatever the hell that even means. Um, you know, which to me, if you go into something to debunk it, um, I mean, that's not a scientific approach whatsoever, right. contrary right. to what these people seem to think. It's an ideological approach. Um, but, you know, to my great surprise, I found that um, this subject was not just, you know, worthy of an investigation and a book, but that, that there was overwhelming evidence that this place, culture, civilization, continent at one time, then... I would argue by the time the story got to the Egyptians and then Plato, it was the third destruction, you know, so that's why he was talking about a large island off the coast of, say, modern day Portugal, instead mm -hmm. of, you know, the version of it that Casey tells, Edgar Casey, you know, which is three destructions, a large continent down to um, the three smaller islands and archipelago that Plato would have been describing. But... You know, it was fascinating for me as a, you know, professional historian from the old right. school, you know, who was like trained in how history is written to really fully flex that ability on a topic that I had never really seen a professional historian address. You know, most of the people that write about it are kind of like journalists or uh, clairvoyants themselves or mm -hmm. just people interested in that field. But I wanted to see like, if I bring to bear 
you know, all of my abilities from studying professionally, you know, history and ancient Greece and ancient Rome and all through the enlightenment, what can I find, you know? And, um, I had to my great surprise, I, I found quite a bit. I found a hell of a lot actually. And now it's almost inconceivable to me when people say, um, that this is a legend or a myth, you know, and I always tell people, uh, go back to the, I won't even say original because that's enough. That's the myth. You know, you want to talk about a myth. The myth is that Plato cooked this whole thing up, you know, when in fact there is actually evidence in the historical record, albeit scant compared to his account, um, of this word actually mentioned, not just in ancient Greece, but in India and in other places, um, the Mahabharata, example mentions it so i was interested though in you know let's just take it step by step like like a you know like my friend and colleague um rob nyland who's uh -huh. a great researcher he's a you know kind of like an amateur archaeologist and a sculptor who who goes to egypt and investigates the sphinx uh -huh. he said to me something one time that was really true he said you know history it's like a crime scene you know, you, you got to approach it like like you're walking into a murder scene because things have been changed. The culprits are gone. You just got a bunch of evidence and you got to put on the white gloves and really piece together a story. It's not going to be there for you and it's going to be tampered with, you know. Um, and so with that in mind, I really just wanted to go back through time, you know, in the book chronologically and show okay, like what are the earliest sources that talk about this? And let's see how this story has evolved throughout, you know, it doesn't go literally every century, but it does go from this point to that point, you know, skipping a few centuries where I couldn't find a lot of strong information. But you see that this is a story that people have been trying to figure out for all of recorded history. There has actually never been a time where this has not been a very interesting topic to debate, you know, so contrary to what most people think that this is a new age thing, uh, no, quite the contrary. This is a foundational, not myth or legend, foundational historical account, according to Plato, you know, who I don't think anybody would call uh, a bogus source. You know, <laughs> you're talking about one of the most influential people in Western history who says specifically, you know, through the character of uh, Critias, Socrates, as crazy as the story sounds, all every word of it is true. And it was vouched for by our distant relative Solon, who was a real character, you know, and where did he get it? He got it from the temple priests in Egypt, you know, and, and then this is why it all starts to make sense, because all the clairvoyant sources eventually point back to Egypt, pre-dynastic Egypt being the Atlantean reboot, one of them, after the destruction around 10,000, say 300 BC, you know? Um, and so it explains a lot of that pre-dynastic Egyptian time, actually, uh, that, that seems like a black hole, you know, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. for the average person. And, and where we think, oh, it's just uh, dynastic Egypt appeared out of nowhere and right. the Great Pyramid was built by Khufu as a tomb. And it's like, well, no, that's not the story that any of the channelers said. You know, they all unanimously said the same thing, that the pyramid was built 
10,500 roughly BC before the final destruction of Atlantis as a final redoubt and resting place for the knowledge and also as a machine and a device that did many things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the Arabic sources say the same thing. It's just that those sources come from medieval times. So people say, well, those are just fairy tales that, you know, like uh, Aladdin's carpet or something, you know, that mm -hmm. they made up. But that's what the Arab sources said about the Grand Pyramid. You know, because we don't have right. any, um, we don't have any construction records. Which, again, if it was built in dynastic Egypt, you'd think they would have left a record somewhere of that building's construction, and yet we don't have one. Right, um, right. So, you know, it, it was an interesting book because it goes from this kind of mid-Atlantic uh, nucleus civilization, you know, that was at once very big and. If you go to my website, I have a map of, of the oceans with the, the, the ocean floors with the water uh, taken out. And when people say, well, where is it? You know, and continents can't just disappear. And I say, go to my website, go to michaelleflem.com, go to the top left. And I mean, what is in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? It's not an empty basin. There's a giant continent the size of North America that we call the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and the Continental Shelf. You know, and again, what what's the name of the ocean? You know? Right. Where did that come from? You know, um, and so to me, it's not really like even a question anymore. The question is, you know, how much detail can we get from that time since mm -hmm. it was so long ago? You know, and, and for that, you've got to go to the clairvoyant. Uh, however, you admit that as reality, um, you have to go to those sources to get like visions if you will windows into well like what what were the people like what it what was right. the technology like you know because plato he talked about it a little bit but not as much as say edgar casey or these other sources it's interesting that, that someone with your with your background would go to clairvoyance because i mean <clears> that's <throat> what you say there's a lot of debunker there's a lot of debunking out there and the scientific community isn't uh, you know, this is kind of on the fringe as far as anything you're having to do with clairvoyance. So I find it really interesting that you did that. Yeah, you know, and I didn't believe in this. I don't even like that word, but I didn't. You know what I like to say? I wasn't aware of it, you know, because now I'm starting to sound like the people that say, do you believe in Atlantis? I say it's not a religious question. It's do I see evidence or do I not? And yes, I do. But I guess I didn't see any compelling evidence before I did this book. You know, mm -hmm. say 10 years ago, if you had asked me about, um, you know, past life regressions or oh, the. Um, yeah, if you had asked me about, um, say, the validity of past life regressions or, mm -hmm. you know, hypnotherapy um, to bring or, or even psychic archaeology, which which I got into a lot, you know, using uh, clairvoyance to discover things in this timeline. Um, I wouldn't have discredited it outright because that's not my nature, but I would have just said, well, I, I don't know anything about it, you know, right. so therefore I can't really use it. But, you know, really, when I started researching, say, the defense intelligence agencies, um, you know, Project Stargate, where, you know, they had like Lynn Buchanan and these contractors in the 70s who were remote viewing military targets and then the Soviet Union was doing it themselves. Um, you know, I started to think like, wait, really? You know, I mean, th this was new to me 10 years ago. And, you know, then I started to read things like from 
Dean Radin at the Noetics Institute in Stanford, and you know where he's showing that everybody has some sort of low-level measurable clairvoyance that he did in uh, peer-reviewed, you know, experiments. Uh, I was like, well, okay, well, it's real. So who are the best sources of that? Um, and in that research, you know, I came across like everybody always does. You come across people like Edgar Casey, mm-hmm. um, Dolores Cannon, Barbara Hancloud, these kind of big, you know, big, even though Dolores Cannon was just a hypnotherapist, you know, she didn't claim to be clairvoyant, like, say, Casey, who would go into a hypnagogic trance or even in waking life, who had some sort of, according to witnesses, low level clairvoyance, uh, could see mm-hmm. auras and things like that waking. Um, but really, it was uh, uh, the, A Dweller on Two Planets, this very strange book from 1886 that I don't even know how I came across um, at the bookstore, probably, uh, just looking through the, you know, haunted house paranormal section, which I hate that they put these things there because it's just another branch of science that we don't understand right. fully. But, um, you know, and I, I just started reading that book kind of casually, like, you know, what is this? Um, and to my great surprise, that became really one of the biggest chapters of the book, almost like 60 pages, I think. 65 pages are dedicated to what I think is the most comprehensive to date uh, on planet Earth breakdown of what that book really is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is a book that was, you know, channeled in automatic writing sessions over three years by a kid was 17 years old with no formal education living next to Mount Shasta in Eureka, California in 1886, who's literally describing what later becomes basically the Star Wars franchise. Except the only problem is that franchise isn't created for another 80 years. So, I mean, where is he getting 90 years? Where is he getting this story and again his story is set in a very specific for our purposes of our investigation time period it's not an arbitrary date like a long time ago he says i'm channeling a past life from 11,160 bc on the island of poside in the atlantean empire and this is what our names were this is the name this is what the city looked like uh, and it was the same capital city that Plato was describing because he describes circular moats. And he says, you know, Plato himself was talking, I believe, about the island of Poseidon because in the center was the statue of Poseidon surrounded by the circular moats. Hmm. And so and then you go to Edgar Casey and you find out that he says at the end, like around 10,000 B.C., right. this former continent through multiple destructions, three over 40,000 years spread out over different times had been reduced to three islands and he calls them Poside, Arion, or Arion and Og. You know, so again, like when you hear these terms, Poside, Atlantis, it's like, I look at it like this, you know, there's the British Empire, then there's England. You right. know? There's the Atlantean Empire, which included, you know, colonies and according to Plato, the entire Mediterranean was a colony of it. That's what he said. And... Right. It had dominion, he said, over parts of the, you could reach the other continent, you know, and it's like, what is he talking about? He's talking about North America, mm-hmm. you know, or the Americas, the new world that wasn't supposed to have been reached, you know, for another 
1700, 1800 years after he wrote that dialogue. So it's like, how did Plato, through way of the Egyptians, know about the existence of the far continent past the true ocean, as opposed to the Mediterranean Sea, you know? And so all these things start to add up. And I guess what I wanted to do was, you know, take this vast just collection of dates and places and stories and really make it so that like anybody, you know, I don't care if you've read 500 books on Atlantis, there's going to be something in here that you've never seen. But if you've just been a curious person, this, yeah, I've heard of this thing. Uh, you could still read it and I take you along so that you're, you're never lost, you know? So it's like, uh, a great kind of intro but at the same time has levels of depth for even i would argue the most you know sophisticated hardcore atlantis researcher i think um will get a kick out of it you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it makes sense to me though because even the birth of christ it was known all over the world yeah if americans knew about it so somewhere along the line word was being you know the the message was getting through. So mm -hmm. it does make sense about Atlantis, like you say, that you went to multiple sources to get to, you know, to find this information about it. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, that's interesting that you said that because, um, you know, it was Atlant uh, Ignatius Donnelly who himself said, um, you know, he has a famous line, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically concludes his, his study with, okay, let's just take a look at this. We just found a giant continental-sized landmass under the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, he's writing five years after the fact. He's saying, we just discovered a giant mountain range exactly where Plato said this thing was. Okay. Mm -hmm. By the way, it took me a long time. I had to call a friend who had a JSTOR, like, uh, elite access pass to get this document. But I found the original lecture from the people on the U.S. They, I believe it was the uh, Challenger, the ship that mapped with soundings the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And they gave a, these are the top oceanographers in the world. These aren't, you know, new age people at contact in the desert. These are very boring, stale oceanographers from the 19th century. And you know what they said? They gave a conference in London immediately after they discovered the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And they declared that now that we have found this, it actually gives much more credibility to this story, in their words, that Plato heard from, you know, Solon by way of the Egyptian temple priest. And so they actually said when they found the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, could you imagine that today, if mainstream researchers found a sunken object saying that? I mean, they and they said that in um, Scientific American, you know? So again, it, it, it was... You know, Donnelly was influenced by that discovery, of course. And he took it further because he said, well, let's just think about this. We just got word from the top authorities in oceanography that they found a huge sunken landmass off the coast of Portugal where the Azores are. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on and he's like, where does the name Atlantic Ocean come from? There is no etymology really that can explain that. one." OK, then he goes even further and he's like, there are multiple towns in Mexico called Atlan, 
or Atitlan or Aztlan, the Aztec themselves. The word Azteca means the people from Aztlan or Aztalan, depending on how you describe it, you know, um, and so on and so forth. And it's like this actually makes much more sense if you realize that, you know, in Edgar Casey's timeline, this civilization began I mean, in almost an incalculably long amount of time, it's not clear. He doesn't give a clear start date, but he says as long as perhaps 180,000 BC and then reaching its kind of first destruction around, but in, in a very different sense than we would consider civilization, you know, because in Casey's timeline, like people are still basically androgynous until 110,000 BC when this character called Amelius comes down, who is the same soul that becomes Jesus and Mary, according to Casey, and basically civilizes them and splits people into male and female. Now, this is what Casey said. And he said this took place in 110,000 BC, and that there were, you know, 50,000 more years of something that, that he doesn't ever explain. That's a complete black hole. Most of his readings are during the final you know, 10,500 BC time period for, for most of his clients. Mm -hmm. So there's something, I guess, going on back then, according to him. And then in 50,722 BC, um, apparently they had reached some point where they had basically flying craft that were primitive, that were, in Casey's words, created out of the skins of pachyderms, like elephants and wow. camels and things like this, from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which, by the way, that... They have found elephant bones in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And Plato himself said there were many elephants on this island. So I'm just giving you like a little taste of that to me is, okay, you have three completely different sources. Plato, Edgar Cayce, and oceanographic uh, people who were digging uh, pylons for some oil rig or something. And they said, you know, we found a bunch of mastodon bones at the very edge of the Continental Ridge. Wow. Casey said the edge of the Continental Ridge used to be the lowlands of Atlantis. Then you got Plato saying, out of nowhere, as a Greek man, there were many elephants on this island. And it's like, I mean, at this point, you have to start taking this thing like, well, what, what, how could that be? Right. These aren't random guesses, you know, and that's just a very general one. You know, Casey said some other things that are nearly impossible to explain unless he really was channeling some sort of Akashic truth, you know? Um, and I, I, I try to engage with that the best I can, you know, like really show people, even to the degree of kind of shocking me, that, um, you know, when Casey said in 1932 that the Nile River used to empty into the Atlantic through the center of Africa. And then in 1986, space shuttle imaging radar actually confirmed that. You know, and it's like that's 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 a very good guess if he's just making these things up, you know. And in fact, everything he said about antiquity, nearly that I've researched, it's either been not disproven uh -huh. or confirmed. But very few things he said have just been flat wrong, you know, which leads me to believe that, you know, these are valid sources, um, you know, particularly with his timeline. His timeline is. For an uneducated man from Hopkinsville, Kentucky, who taught Sunday school, uh, how he knew the dates of pre-dynastic Egypt to the decade, it's, it's impossible. 
You know, his own family said he never read any of this. He didn't even read Plato's dialogues. He just read the Bible and the newspaper, you know, and in waking life knew nothing about these subjects. So strange. When you talk about Atlantis, what was the life like there? What did you surmise? Well, you know, the best window into that, uh, Charlotte, probably is. Well, you know, I'll tell it like this. Um, it's kind of like how I structured the book. You know, I called it Visions of Atlantis because it's obviously got some clairvoyant visions. Right, right, right. But it's a kind of a double entendre because it's also like going for an eye exam, you know, where it's like, which one's better, this one or this one? <laughs> this one or this one, you know? And yeah. the book kind of goes in that order. Like, you get the most cloudy picture at first, mm -hmm. which you know, would be ancient sources translated 50 times from many languages. Then you get to Plato. Then you get to, you know, historical accounts where people are just basically reinterpreting Plato through their time. But then you get this 2020 or like 2015 vision from A Dweller on Two Planets and Edgar Casey. But really, A Dweller on Two Planets to me is the most astounding clairvoyant on the ground level to answer your question account. Mm -hmm. of what this civilization was at the final millennia of its existence before its final destruction. And to answer your question, you know, just to take the date Frederick Oliver gives, which is 11,160 BC, he says at this time, this civilization, you know, had been reduced to a few large islands off the coast of, you know, say Western Europe, Portugal, which is right where Plato says it was off front of the Straits of Gibraltar. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they had reached a level of technology that would appear to us as watching Star Wars, basically. Mm -hmm. um, they had knowledge of basically extraterrestrials. They had craft that were intermedium. So they had cigar shaped flying craft that could go in the air and underwater. He even explains, and I go to great lengths, you know, with the disclaimer, like, forgive this two page quote, you know, but it's worth reading because he explains the technology. It's not just, we had ships that went in the water or something like right. that, you know, right. which is what Casey would generally do. He would just say in a very awkward channeled voice, like, uh, you were the one who built the crafts that could fly in the air and, and in the sea. That's as good as you're going to get from Casey right? with the technology. Um, besides his explanation of the crystal, which is incredibly detailed. Um, and I got a whole chapter on that, the crystal power plant, the two-way stone. Um, but in Frederick Oliver's account, it's like he's telling you what the instrument cluster looked like. He's explaining the science, actually, that they use at the time. Like mm -hmm. how they could transmute metals from clay and, and the process involved in that, you know, and, you know, it's fascinating because it's basically like these people on this island of Poside were, you know, very similar to modern people. You know, he's on a diplomatic mission on this ship. He's got to go to India to do a trade deal. Um, and on the way back, he does a tour of the whole world because he's in this flying ship that, you know, can travel two miles in the atmosphere and also go underwater and he's got his entourage of scientists and bodyguards and he's a prince you know or the person who's talking to him because it's not frederick oliver's past life it's right. a 
different person who's telling him through automatic waking life, automatic writing sessions. Um, and so, yeah, it's basically Star Wars. They're talking to each other on cell phones that have holographic image projection that he calls names, N-A-I-M, you know? Um, and again, it's like, I go through the full extent of like, trying to discredit it myself just because I want to show people like, I don't just believe everything I read. Right. So, so everything he says, like he describes the formation of the grand Canyon. He describes copper mines in Lake Superior. And he describes how oh, those were mines that Atlanteans used, you know, uh, oh. he describes, uh, colonies of Atlanteans in present day Arizona next to Lake Mitri, you know, and, and he has the old name for Lake Mitri and, you know, so what I did was, and this probably took me half of a year, you know, and I just did it for myself because I wanted to say nobody has read this book in as much detail as me because it's very important. And so I said, what what could he have read in 1886? Even if he just imagined the rest, like plugged it in, what, what, what could he have read? You know, and there were a handful of things like it's possible he could have been reading uh, at the National Archive or something like that. Like he right. could have gotten a copy of a survey, but it's so improbable and it's not supported by his biography, which says that he grew up as a kid in a mining community in California. And uh -huh. you wouldn't have had access in 1886 to, I mean, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have even seen that survey map of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which was not released publicly, I don't believe, unless you were an oceanographer. And also, if he had seen that, um, there's no detail. It just talks about depths and draws a vague outline. But somehow, he is able to sketch in this book an exact contour map of where the Azores are presently. Cool. You know, which I show in the book. I take a satellite map from 2020. <laughs> And I superimpose it over his sketch from 1886, and it's exact. And I mean, that really shocked me. That that shocked me more than anything I saw, you know, and I was shocked many times. But when I really saw that, I was like, you have to be kidding me. Uh -huh. You know, you have to be kidding me that, 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 you know, I thought it was real, but this is kind of eerie now, because if he could do that, then his story was probably also true. Uh -huh. And it's a fascinating story because it's almost it's it's kind of like Star Wars. A long time ago, things were more advanced, you know, and were destroyed in, you know, a vaguely described cataclysm. He doesn't really talk about it. Right. Um, you know, neither does Plato. Plato cuts off the dialogue when he says, and Zeus said, Bing, that's it. It's right. the ultimate cliffhanger. And. You know, Edgar Casey he details the first two destructions, which were human-caused by application, misapplications of a devastating technology that reoccurred multiple times in that community. But the third one, Casey vaguely alludes to as kind of a combo of misuse of technology and likely natural disaster, you know. Um, although I would argue Plato did say, basically, that a comet hit the Earth in the opener I believe it's of Timaeus, where the uh -huh. priest says to him that you have this myth of Phaeton who lost control of his dad's chariots. 
and fell to the earth. And you call it a Greek myth, but it really happened. And we Egyptians remember because we write things in stone. And you Greeks just write things in papyri, you know, in, in scrolls and things like this. And you don't keep records. That's why you're asking us for your own people's history. Because that's what Solon was out there doing on an emissary mission as a politician. Right. You know? Right. Um, so again, I, I think it's it's like for us to say this is a, a myth or a legend is um, is disingenuous, you know. Uh -huh. um, it only became a myth to me, really, in the last, I would say, 30 years, you know. And, and that was another interesting thing to see was that up until very recently, the early 90s, late 80s, uh, people took, took this very seriously. Yeah. Very seriously. Um, it was just kind of like, well, it's just a matter of time until we discover more evidence. It wasn't like, oh, you're still talking about that magical Disney city underwater with dolphins and mermaids. It's like, no, this is a recent development, the Disneyfication um, right. of Atlantis. So I wanted to show people that, too, because it's like uh, it, it's kind of like a UFO community. You know, it's like until you meet somebody else that's seen one, you're afraid to talk about it, you know. Right, right, right. I want to show people I'm not afraid to talk about <laughs> Atlantis, you know. Uh, I'll talk, I'll debate anybody on it, you know. And I sent this book to all my old uh, professors, old classic, old school professors. And, you know, they didn't have really anything to say except, you know, I'm proud of you for for using everything we taught you on this subject. We've never seen anybody really do this before. This is really interesting, you know. So, um yeah, I think that's why I wanted to do it was just kind of reinvigorate the the franchise, if you will, you know, because, again, I, I've, I've argued this in, in the book that not just Star Wars, but Lord of the Rings both come from the lived reality of Atlantis. You know, and in fact, J.R. Tolkien said the same thing to his son, you know, which I don't think a lot of people know that. Tolkien used to have dreams about Atlantis, used to talk about it, and even created that fictional island called Numenor based on Plato's Atlantis. And that's one of the most popular franchises in fiction ever, just like Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, why are we attracted to these things, you know, to the dark side and the Force, the Jedi, ships, advanced submersibles, the eye of sour, you know, all these things. Why are these constantly popular motifs? I think it's because if you look through the clairvoyant record, you find that we lived in an actual world where this stuff was, was taking place and we all remember it, but the powers that be don't find it useful. I believe, you know, for that to be true because then, well, number one, it's scary. Because if right. we have that and it's gone, that could happen again. But also, you know, I think we, through our kind of arrogance in 2023 of, well, we have Facebook and Twitter and we can live stream. So we must be at the top, you know, um, that clouds a lot of our thinking because, you know, in these time spans we're talking about, the only remains you're going to have are probably megalithic architecture. You're not going to have a, Atlantis iPhone 10 from 12,000 years ago. Right. Don't care how well it's built. That's probably not going to last. You know, you're not going to have a ship. You know, you might have what 
KC and others say is, you know, preserved in multiple halls of records yet to be discovered. That's possible. Um, or perhaps a crystal or something that can be, you know, activated to, I, I don't know. I, I'm not presuming to know, but you're not going to have like the basic accoutrements of their society preserved in a way that would like, you know, uh, if the ice in Antarctica melted, you're not going to see, you know, an Atlantean colony with, you know, people frozen in line for an Atlantean nightclub or something like you're right, going to see right. probably very little. Um, so that's another thing, because this is you're talking about a time scale that most historians won't even engage with. Uh-huh. You're talking 12,000 years ago. It's hard for me to even imagine living in Plato's time 2,400 years ago. That's an insanely long time ago. Um, so to go back 10,000 before, it's like, wow, that's you're really going back. Um, Where do you think they got the technology? Did they create it themselves or was it brought in from somewhere else? You know, that depends. Uh, different channelers have said different things. The majority of channeled readings on that subject, well, actually, they all include some level of extraterrestrial intervention. Even Casey, um, mm-hmm. w- which is interesting, his take on it. But, um, you know, some, like uh, Phyllis Schlemmer, I include her, her book, uh, The Only Planet of Choice. Um, she has a chapter from, like, channelings in the 70s that, talk about Atlantis was one of the many kind of experiments, you know, of of different races coming here um, that seeded Earth. Um, Dolores Cannon talks about that in some of her clients' past life readings. They remember being part of this group that came here. Um, But I think, you know, it's important kind of to distinguish because it's like everything is so black and white these days. It's like it was aliens or it was people. It's like, well... It could have been extraterrestrials that came in that, you know, intermixed with humanity and left hybrids or worked with us for a while. Like I would argue the Old Testament is alluding to that in many ways with the Elohim and things like this. Uh-huh. Or, you know, there could have been vast periods of time where these beings and then the channel, some of the channelers say that where like they basically left, you know, and it's like. Like, uh a watchmaker, you know, like, okay, set it and forget it. We're going away. We'll check in in 5,000 years, you know, and we've got emissaries there that you don't know about, or, you know, we'll keep an eye on you, but we won't take as much of an active uh, presence. And so I, that's what Casey said, basically, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, in the best language he could in the 1920s, before this was even in the m- public consciousness of Americans, um, you know, this idea of extraterrestrials, really. But, yeah, I think it was absolutely influenced by extraterrestrial technology. But it seems that at the end, uh, the people themselves had reached a point where perhaps they were hybridized or from a bloodline that was hybridized. But basically, Casey and these people, they, they don't let humanity off the hook. It's not like, oh, you got technology, you couldn't. It's like, no, you on your own volition, uh-huh. you know, built up basically what looked would look to us like alien technology. Uh-huh. And, you know, there was a transhumanist element to it, um, which, again, I mean, 
to for a kid in 1886, 17 years old, he literally says, he says at the final six, 500 years of Atlantis, mm-hmm. he says the leadership had become as electricity. I mean, this is like the only terms he has to use, you know, so electricity had just been discovered, you know, in his century. And he's using these. He's like, they had become as electricity and could project their mind to any point on earth and affect material reality while projected. You know, so it's like, is he talking about AI, transhuman? Who who knows? Right. But he basically says, and this was the key to it all, you know, and this didn't come until much thinking where I was like, wait a minute. I think this book, A Dweller in Two Planets, this very obscure final chapter that people don't seem to remember is really a part of the book where he's he's saying he goes look i lived in eleven thousand, roughly 160 bc you know so let's just say eleven thousand one hundred. let's say his character lived 60 years but he says in the next millennia so that brings us up to about ten thousand bc which is around the time plato himself and edgar casey both said it went fully kaput and then rebooted in Egypt, the Pyrenees, and the Yucatan. But he said that the supreme, like, Star Wars technology basically peaked around 400 years before the fall and then was completely forgotten and lost in the final stages when the people regressed to the civilization Plato described. Because in Plato, it's just... People fighting with spears, chariots, sailing on sailing ships, right. and going on this hell-bent, basically suicide mission against all of the colonies in the Mediterranean, you know? And yeah. that was a very important part for me as a, if I'm being honest, to reconcile. Like, okay, Edgar Casey's describing Star Wars, Plato's describing Bronze Age warfare. How do the two meet? Well, in Frederick Oliver's book, I found the answer, which was, they devolved into the culture that became the primary account from Plato that we interpret as the only official account, you know, and it was the only official detailed account for 2000 something, 2300 years until this kid channeled this book, really, to my knowledge, the first channeled account of Atlantis Mm -hmm. and you know, brought this subsequent kind of addendum, like, well, yes, it was advanced, but it declined into a Bronze Age barbaric civilization and then was destroyed. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Plus, you know, when uh, with that alien connection, and I don't know how into that you are, that, you know, that, that, that part of this, but yeah, very I mean, anybody that's been aboard the ship and have had you know, regressions done, will tell you that the aliens, the, the main message that the aliens are here for is to keep an eye on us, to make sure we don't kill ourselves with our technology. Makes so sense. that's what makes a lot of sense with this myth, you know, or whatever it is for Atlantis, because maybe that's what happened. We, you know, they got all that technology. And, and like I said, in the beginning of the show, it's repetitive because the, the same thing happened with the Romans, you know, yeah. the Mayans and all that. And you get to a certain point with your technology and you either embrace it and use it a certain way or you're going to just totally disintegrate yourself. Right. Right. And you know, it's, um, 
It's really interesting because you've got, you know, technology, mm -hmm. you've got natural disasters, you know, like, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if this is true, let's just pretend that, or let's just assume that the timeline Edgar Casey gave is accurate because 95% of what he says is accurate. So let's just pretend this, this is true. So let's just put a hundred thousand BC as the kind of giant continent beginnings of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, think about that. If it ends in 10,000 BC, you're talking about 90,000 years. I mean, it wouldn't even really even, it wouldn't even be the same culture, you know, like that's why it's so important to talk about like, we are only talking when we, the general public, say Atlantis. You're talking about the final millennia right. of Atlantis. When you're talking about Plato's account, you're talking about the final 10,500 BC around there account of Atlantis. You're not talking about anything that came before it, you know, because the only way to access anything that came before it is from perhaps. Well, actually, the Sumerians mention, you know, a timeline that, that does overlap with that. You know, their reign of the gods. So do the Egyptians in the Turin papyrus talk about, but they don't go into detail. They just say this king reigned for 1600 years and land far off to the west in 13,000 BC. And people go, OK, this is just make believe. But it's like when you see Casey's accounts of how they could use life extension technology and how some of these people were not even fully human they were extraterrestrials or hybridized beings right. well then these accounts of like them living a thousand years is is not fantastical it's like mm -hmm. casey has an account of how you know through a sort of like crystal scanner they could you know basically like in his limited language of the 20s and 30s like reverse telomeres and things like this and mm -hmm. you know you just have to assume what he's saying a lot of times because uh he's a product of you know the source he was channeling had to use his own brain and english vocabulary of 1932 to explain these things but you know he's basically saying that like if all the life extension pipe dreams we have today mm -hmm were pushed 500 years at, at full speed into project R&D development, you know, that's what they had plus, plus 10, you know? Um, and even as, as crazy as this is for me to see, because I mean, I'm still, I still live, you know, uh, a quite, I guess, conventional life, you know, mm -hmm. as a history teacher, you know, as this is my side thing. Uh, or it was my side thing. Now it's, now it's my, now it's, I guess it is, I do this as much as I teach you know, Roman history or things like this. But, um, you know, he gives an account of a woman and she's like, well, what was my past life? He's like, wow. He's like, well, you were here a long time. And she said, how long? He said, 6,000 years you live wow. in that place. And she was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you had found a way because you were part of this elite, you know, female priesthood, you mm -hmm. had found you were part of this, you know, group, the children of the law of one who, you know, basically preserved that knowledge so it wouldn't fall into enemy hands. So he's like, you never aged. You stayed like 30 years old at your peak your whole life for 6,000 
years until you got so sick of it that you decided to basically return to the astral plane on the top of a mountain, you know? And <laughs> But I mean, that that's the longest lifespan. And I've read every reading he's ever given on this subject. Mm -hmm. And that one, even to me, it's like, like, I mean, even 600 years is hard to believe, but it's kind of like, okay, like, you know, people live to 120, maybe. Right. I can imagine, like, if I had been alive when Columbus landed in the Bahamas and I'm still here now talking about it. But even that's, like, pretty hard to imagine. But it's, like, to imagine that somebody had lived through, like, I don't know, all of recorded history and then is here right now, like, yeah, I remember Sumeria. It was a great place, you know, 4,000 BC. It's, like, that's important hard to believe you know but it's hard, it's hard to wrap your head around it it is it is so again i i don't know I, I don't claim that and that's the thing you know with this book i don't tell anybody what to think i say that on page one you know mm -hmm. it's just here to show you evidence that i've pieced together from thousands of books and weird journals and oceanographic charts that i've spent seven years researching i've put it in front of you but you know, even I myself do not make a firm conclusion at the end because it's it's too much to, as I just mentioned, like, think of how different America is, just the United States from the time of its founding to now, in terms of its boundaries, its culture, its language, music, technology. Okay, you're talking less than 300 years. So when you're talking about like Atlantis, even in, let's say, the last 3,000 years of its existence, I mean, how many of those changes did it go through? You know, and, and then if that landmass and people had been there for 90,000 years before that, I mean, that's, what is that? That's three, almost four precessional cycles. Mm -hmm. That's four 25,000, 26,000 year processional cycles where civilizations are supposed to completely transform. So right. it's like, God only knows, you know, was it even called that at that time? You know, that's another thing. Like, uh, as I mentioned, you know, Casey calls the last island Poside. In other readings, he's like, you didn't live on Poside. You lived on Og, which is right next to Atlantis. Or no, you came from Arion or you came from zoo, mu, la, da. He has all these places, and you're like, where, where are you talking about, you know? And he'll give you an analog. He's like, well, the people from, you know, mu and og and la and da met and created what you call the Maya. Or, you know, in 42,000 BC, people had already been migrating to the Yucatan, but... 20,000 years later, that was destroyed in this flood, which you call the biblical flood. And then people from Lemuria moved in. And it's like, it becomes a impossibly, you know, complex story to, to fully explain. Because it would be like asking somebody, hey, can you write me a book on the last 5,000 years of planetary history on Earth and write one book? Like on Sumerian history, Indian history, Japanese history, Chinese. Right, 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 right. Could you do that? And then could you write 20 more of those and include extraterrestrial? It's like, 
you know, so that's why I try to show people like I go very specific into the year, you know, 11,160 BC. Right. To show you what this kid said was going on there. But then you got to zoom the lens out and say, like, but I claim to know nothing about what happened between 50,000 and, say, 22,000. I don't make any claim on that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know? Do you think that, that whatever occurred to dis destroy that society happened quickly or was it a gradual buildup? Well, Casey said there were three. He said the first one is quite interesting. He says in there's this guy. Guy comes in for a life reading. I mean, could you imagine if you were this guy? He says, you know, you you want a life reading? Okay. He says, your name was Tim, T-I-M. He says, you lived in 50,722 B.C. 50,722. And he says, you were an emissary from Atlantis who traveled on a one of these flying zeppelins made out of the skin of stretched elephants powered by some sort of, well, crystal that entrained with metal on the ship and gas propulsion. This is what Casey said for the original, like, steampunk, basically, flying machine. And he said, a global message was broadcast to other advanced civilizations around the world, not just Atlantis, other ones in India, China, and the Gobi Desert, because the world had been overrun by basically the megafaunal animals that we know existed back then. Okay. And he said, basically, people had to figure out, like, how do we deal with what he called the animal menace? You know, and this came up many times. I think there were like four times they tried to figure this out. Like, how do we kill all of them? You know, there's right. giant sloths. There's host eagles that eat people. There's probably at that point other things we don't even know about, predatory creatures all over the world. And he said they decided to use this. This is what he said. He said it was a directed energy weapon fired from the stratosphere. So they had that technology. And that it was fired into volcanic flows at strategic points on the Earth with the intention of, particularly on Atlantis, of with the intention of killing the food supply of the megafauna. I'm not adding anything to that. That's that's what Edgar wow. Casey said in 1932. Wow. Wow. And wow, he wow, said wow. that went wrong and not only created basically like a multi-supervolcanic eruption globally, but precipitated and accelerated a pole shift, magnetic pole shift that had already been in progress. And he said that was one of the worst ones because it basically fractured the whole Mid-Atlantic Ridge continent into five islands and destroyed that society. Um, now, what's fascinating is that I wanted to see, is there any evidence of a megafaunal extinction at 50,000 BC? Guess what? There is. And they can't explain it. And that's from a peer-reviewed journal of quaternary studies. It's a very boring journal that just says we were conducting an experiment of global megafaunal extinctions. There actually is a dramatic spike around squiggly line 50,000 BC that we cannot attribute to anything but 
possibly human hunting played a role. That's incredible. You know, um, so. you think about that, and then, like you say, uh, Casey, you know, was kind of cryptic with his readings, but then again, Nostradamus was also cryptic with his readings. There you go. So it's all up for interpretation. Yeah. And you know, Casey was cryptic sometimes, but sometimes it was like you really were there, you know? Um, and somebody made a good point. Uh, actually, it was the author of an incredible book that actually somebody that read my book sent me a message and recommended called The Secret Vaults of History. Mm-hmm. And that, that is an incredible book from, I think, the 70s. And it's real life accounts of psychic archaeology. And he mentions Casey, you know, and I had not read that book when I wrote mine. And he says, you know, what a shame that like 95% of the people that got readings with him were just like very kind of, you know, just curious, old fashioned Christian people that had no expertise in Egyptology or anthropology. He's like, I could, I could die sometimes when I'm reading these readings. Because he's like, if you had just asked him a couple more questions, he would have gone all the way, you know? And, like, that's the only reason we even know these dates is because that guy happened to ask him at the very end of the reading, which was really meant to tell him how he can advance in this lifetime. That's why he gave these readings. The guy said, well, what date was that? Like, what date exactly was that? And Uh there was a pause and then 50,722. You know, so it really depended on like he was in touch with a infinite source of knowledge that was accurate. I I, I have to accept that at this point, not just from his life readings, mm-hmm. but for his medical readings where he can remote view uh, specific spinal fractures without being in a room that are confirmed. I mean, that's that's real. He really did that. But right. it. It's frustrating because there were only a couple people who like really put the screws to him. Like, okay, how did that two-oid crystal, the giant crystal in the observatory, how did it work? And like, that's a phenomenal reading because he goes into great detail on like how that actually worked and what the building looked like. And it was lined with semiconducting materials that you would call this in this timeline. And it's like, but you're right. The majority are kind of just like, uh, vague allusions to these factions, you know, or or in one of his most fascinating kind of like subplots that you see actually throughout all channelings unrelated to Casey is this, you know, mutant factor that, that keeps coming in, not just the hybridization of perhaps extraterrestrials or right. interdimensional, whatever beings with humans, but like humans themselves doing sorts of weird things with hybridizing different species and combining them with human beings. And in fact, in a reading that's really bizarre, that I've always said, um, if they haven't made a movie, uh, my God, like they got to make a movie about this because in one reading, Casey's talking about this, um, this migration from Atlantis couple hundred years before the final destruction that Plato would be alluding to. And he's saying one of the places you guys went was the Giza Plateau. And he says, you brought with you, he says, first of all, you stepped into a 
civil war that was already going on with, by the way, the former incarnation of Edgar Casey, Rata, leading a band of people from the Caucasus Mountains into Egypt to reform the existing kind of Nubian culture. Then from the West, you have the Atlanteans coming because they know it's about to go down in a hundred years. And so they're coming to build the Giza plateau, basically the great pyramid to preserve this knowledge. You know, that's why I call that chapter the last redoubt because they knew through extraterrestrial messages, according to Gazi, that the end was near and that they only had a couple hundred years before this whole thing went up in smoke. And he says, he says, you know, you were with that group that went to Giza and you brought with you the things. And he 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 would never really elaborate, but he he did elaborate in one reading because a woman asked him, she's like, you keep talking about these things that the people brought with them. Can you elaborate? And he's like, well, they would be what you would call automatons. Now, again, he doesn't have the language of cloning. He's in 1930. He's in 1926 when he gives this reading, I think. And he says, well, you would call them like automatons. But some of them, he said, would have had animal appendages. So he said, you might see one with the claws of a bird. You might see one with feathers. You might see one with the hooves of a goat or the head of a horse on the body of a man. And he said, <laughs> basically, that there was the there were two things. There was basically like some Island of Dr. Moreau stuff going on between uh -huh. this Sons of Belial, evil priesthood, scientist, World Economic Forum type class that existed back then, Atlantis Economic Forum. And he also said that when way back when people were still incarnating on like mm -hmm. the physical plane, some people decided to kind of mutate into uh, animals that had already existed and kind of like push their evolution themselves. So it wasn't just animal-human hybridization in some wacky, like, Dr. Wily <laughs> Mega Man factory. It was also, he said, some of them were naturally occurring, like, species that no longer exist, that were enslaved. But he says when they get to Egypt, which is, I should write a whole book on just that, because that's the craziest part of this whole story, is, like, the reboot, like, Escape from Atlantis, you know? And... He gets there and basically he says, you guys built two temples because me, Rata, and others wanted to treat these people better than the way they got treated in Atlantis. Because just because you have the hands of a horse or the face of a bird or feathers, right. you still have a human soul. And so he said that they had a surgical facility because a woman asked him, she says, what do you, you keep talking about this temple? And she's like, Mr. Casey, literally tell me how you would change the hand that from a paw to a human hand. And he says, much like what you would call today, 1927 surgery. And she's like, but how would that be accomplished? She's like, well, through the use of the, the knife 
that could cut without blood, like 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 a lightsaber type thing. You know, mm-hmm. it cauterizes as it goes. And again, he's saying this in 1930. The, he said by the use of the electrical knife that can cut, make incisions without drawing blood. Huh. And he says, but it wasn't a simple process because he says you had, he says, for example, like if I came in and I was like, Let's say I was a bipedal. I was just me, but I was covered in scales, and I had, claw, you know, maybe I still do. I don't know. <laughs> creepy, creepy. And my ex-girlfriend used to say, "You look like a reptilian or something." Maybe I am. But he said, "Look, I could like cut off Michael's hooves and replace them with with like a biological implant." Uh huh. But what about his kids? And Casey said that was where the other temple came in, which was this like. And this is a ridiculous reading. I spend a lot of time on it where it's like it's this like Epcot center in right. a pyramid where these beings are brought and then educated by these humans on like this is where you come from. This is what happened to you. You can be like us, but it's not going to be you. It's going to be four generations. But this is a special diet you should use. This is a special therapy you should use. We're going to surgically remove your feathers and skin. I mean, it's like, it's so weird that if it's fake, it's, uh-huh. it, it doesn't make sense why he would go into this much detail. Right, you know? right. And, and also it doesn't make sense because other channelers who never met him and were not familiar with his work on that very rarefied aspect have said similar things. Um, and I even show in the book just because I like to ground everything in, in possibility. Uh-huh. Um, I cite a guy from a New Scientist article who, who said two years ago, he said, we can absolutely in the next 20 years cut off somebody's head and replace it with another person's head. And it will be, we don't know what, but it is possible. And he says, people that don't think it's possible are just, they're concerned with ethics, but it, it is possible. And I'm going to show you we could do it, you know? Wow. So... Again, if I'm not saying I know, but again, I'll give you one final case on that. You know, why does the Babylonian account told by Barassus, a very reliable source, the Babylonian account of Genesis says we were performing experiments to hybridize humans and animals, put the head of a man on a bull, put the face of a, a bird on a human. And he says all of these images are preserved you know, in the Temple of Bel in Babylon. And again, it's like Casey had never read this account. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, know? you know what I mean? It, it, it's very few people in, in ancient historical accounts or, or uh-huh. fields have read that account. It's a very obscure account that people think is mythological. But in the account, it specifically says we were breeding all sorts of crazy wild animals, you know, and in many of Dolores Cannon's past life regressions, some of her clients were these people and Casey as well. You know, you were either that or you were like an advocate working. um, And it's it's such a big part of his story. It's like 40 different readings talk about this struggle of like, what are we going to do with these mutants, these Uh things that we used to use as slaves in Poside to work in the fields or in the houses. Casey said they were slaves. Some of them were sex slaves. Um, that was a crazy part of the book. 
the the sexual deviance of Atlantis and what they were up to. Uh, I'll save that. That's that alone is worth buying the book for. It's it's pretty wild, you know. But it's also it's like give us fifty years and see if we're not <laughs> doing the same, you know, kind of stuff that that these different sources say they were doing in terms of right. perversions and abuses and really, you know, really what it seems to me is that that whole thing at the end what mm-hmm. was basically like what and Casey even said this basically he's like imagine a world a material world like not a fictional but he's like imagine a material world where basically anything you could imagine there was a technology to create and the lack of ethics on a certain faction to permit that in fact it was encouraged and so imagine imagine if you know jeffrey epstein who was i i mean he was into a lot of this transhumanist stuff and human breeding programs people forget that aspect of him Uh right but i mean look at his ranch in arizona i would argue he probably was even involved in in breed i'm I think actually there is evidence of that in that in that exact property, not the the mm-hmm. Caribbean side. But imagine if you took an Epstein, you know, with same, you know, evil intentions, but gave him that Atlantean power. Well, then you would have these people. Casey said were the sons of Belial, mm-hmm. these people who, you know, human trafficked, had mutant sex slaves, did this, did that, basically did anything the hell they wanted. And in one case, destroyed the culture through a very complicated uh, technological mishap that uh-huh. he suggests that they, you know, precipitated in one of the three destructions, you know. Um, but again, it, it's, it's like... The empire like they got the death star they're going to use it right right, right, right. <laughs> they're not right, just right. gonna let it sit there they're gonna use it if you build the death star you're going to use it and casey even describes one of these weapons as the death ray you know and he said that in 1932 and it's like where are these things coming from you know uh-huh. like absolutely i think it's actually like a archetypical truth that's just coming out in fiction but i don't think you know lucas whether he had inadvertently or not knew it was just telling a fictional story i think he was telling actually the story of atlantis and again why is the star wars franchise start with a long time ago Uh doesn't start with ten thousand years in the future right it's set in a different galaxy okay fine but I find that interesting. It's set a long time ago, you know? Absolutely. And, um, Michael, yeah. Thank you. It's been a fantastic hour and 20 minutes. We've done great. Oh, thank you so much. I, I hope I just, didn't Oh, no, it's fine. And when you talk about people like Lucas, now that we're that, from one last jab into this, you look at people like Lucas and Gene Roddenberry, you know, and the people that had written the stuff about the future mm-hmm. and the past, and somewhere that information is coming to them, yes. you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they're in that bloodline or whatever. But it, what you say is true. I mean, they're 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 essentially telling us what it was. I think so. 
I think so. I think it's more an account of the past than a vision of the future. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just briefly to answer, Gene Roddenberry's best friend was a channeler I cite in the book, Phyllis Schlemmer, Mm -hmm. you know, who Mm -hmm. talks about a federation and a galactic federation and a prime directive. And it's like she claimed to be channeling from actual extraterrestrials. So maybe they were trying to get that message across in a way that Americans in the 60s and 70s could stomach without full disclosure, you know? So I I think you're absolutely right. I think all of this stuff, maybe even this book I wrote, Uh came to me in a weird way that I can't really explain. I don't really know where the hell I got the interest, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. So what's next for you? What's next for me? I'm debating, you know, um, whether I should do, as you said, a follow-up, just talking about the, you know, Escape from Atlantis, you know, John Carpenter's Escape from Atlantis. Or, um, you know, maybe a a fictional story based on real things that I've read from the channelers because they've created a universe that's that's very cool. That would be cool, too. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people find you? Well, they can't find me. I live in in a secluded... uh, I won't give my address. No, um, I live in um, I live in Mexico actually. So, um, oh, awesome! Yeah, I really like it. It's a okay. great place. But um, you can find my virtual persona on uh, my website, uh, michaelleflem.com, one word. And um, also, yeah, you can find the link to the book there, or if you just go to Google and type uh-huh. in my name, you can always find other interviews or um, links to the book, which is exclusively actually it's on amazon and and barnes and noble and a few others if you have like a gift card to books a million or something like that your mom got you you can buy it there as well i don't know i always say it's available it's like let's be honest it's just amazon these days like who buys books from books a million no offense but it is technically available in books a million if you happen to be walking by one or something so Thank you so much for coming on. We'll have to have you on again sometime. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, sir. You have a great rest of your day. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, boy, did I learn a lot. That was awesome. That was really awesome. Okay, tomorrow, I'll be on at noon, special time tomorrow noon, with Andrea Message. We're going to be talking paranormal. She's a paranormal investigator. And you probably might have seen her on uh, several TV shows, but she's going to be with us tomorrow at noon. Pacific. Also, tomorrow evening at 6 p.m., I will be guesting on another show, which is something I rarely do, with Lynn Monet, and I'm going to be talking to her about ghosts and all that, and demons and and all that creepy stuff. So uh, be on the lookout for that. I'll 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 get a teaser up for that shortly, and uh, you guys will be able to follow that link. But that should be tomorrow at 6 p.m. Pacific as well. Okay. Well. That being said, it was a great interview with this gentleman. I learned a lot about Atlantis. Um, who'd have figured, you know, the psychic part of it with every, with, with Ed Casey and all that stuff. So that's fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio, and we are just here to get the word out about our show. Okay, and that's what we want to do. The more the, the more word gets spread, the more people come to watch us, and they like us. You know, we're, 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 we're like the little show that could. 
right? So it's building up and building up and building up, and it's, it's, it's really fun to see, really, really fun to see. Okay, you can find us at California Haunts on Facebook. You can find us at California Haunts on TikTok. You can find me over at Instagram under Ghosty Gal. That's all lowercase. And you can find us on Twitter under, I believe, Cal Haunts and Twitch under Cal Haunts. I, so we're everywhere. All you got to do is Google up, up will pop, up will pop. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming this afternoon. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you got as much out of this interview as I did because, man, it's cool. It's cool. So I'm going to leave you with his contact information and where to get the book. And that's going to do it. And I'll see you tomorrow at noon Pacific. So here we go. Maybe not. <laughs> Glitches. I love it. Okay, the website is michaelleflem.com. It's all one word, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-L-E-F-L-E-M.com. And the book is Visions of Atlantis. And you can get that, like he says, at Amazon. Okay, guys, I will see you tomorrow at noon Pacific time. Have a great eve. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Bye, guys.